0: Time for Legally Speaking here on CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, as we take a look at the latest stories in the news. Coming up, the intricacies of parking bylaws. But first, Michael, good morning, by the way. Thanks
1: for coming in, as always. I'm gl- glad to be here. It's a uh, nice uh, dry day underneath the umbrella.
0: This is an ordinary term that people who have seen it in movies like me will use probably far too often. Diplomatic immunity. In a legal sense, what, what does that actually mean?
1: Indeed, and, and this has actually been uh, a live issue over the past uh, f- a few days as a result of an incident that occurred in the U.K. And what happened in the U.K. was the wife of an American diplomat was driving and was involved in a car crash that wound up killing a very unfortunate 19-year-old named Harry Dunn. Um, and because uh, of her status, uh, being the spouse of a diplomat, she enjoyed diplomatic immunity. Um, And so she, uh, a couple of days later, got an airplane and just flew back to the United States, causing much diplomatic uh, hoo-ha over how that uh, transpired. And there was actually some effort by Donald Trump to uh, mediate this by inviting over the family of the deceased teenager Uh, and then advising them that uh, the uh, woman was in the next room at the White House and asking whether they would like her to come in and apologize, to which they said no and went back to the UK. So that's the the immediate background to this. You know,
0: that got lost in the letter that was drafted to Turkey incident, which is a a separate incident. But I had heard that, and to be honest, I thought it was a joke when I had heard it.
1: Yeah, it's a little bit of a tactless uh, approach. Wouldn't one think that uh, perhaps surprising the family with this person's presence in the... Next room might not go over well. Anyways, it didn't. All right. But it's raised this general issue of diplomatic immunity. What is it? How does that apply? Where does that come from? And how far does it extend? And the modern sort of codification of diplomatic immunity uh, comes uh, from uh, a treaty, the Vienna Convention, which was entered into uh, back in the 1960s. Um, And that was then by various states codified locally, like put into local law, to provide uh, various levels of immunity uh, to various different diplomatic individuals. And the concept there is not hard to imagine. You know, you you perhaps wouldn't want to be the, let's say, you know, Canadian diplomat stationed in some uh, potentially unstable country that doesn't enjoy the rule of law, lest you just uh, find that when Canada does something that displeases the ruler of said country, you find yourself... Uh, charged with something, or you find your family imprisoned, or uh, that's the, the origin of it. But it's fairly broad. Canada extends it. Other countries extend it as well. Uh, and uh, in fact, in Canada, uh, we have a uh, an act that deals with it. It's called the Foreign Missions and International Organizations Act. And it sets out a whole array of different people who invo- involve or enjoy different levels of diplomatic immunity. And it would start with somebody who would be what is described as the diplomatic agent, for example, the diplomat from, you know, the United Kingdom, for example. But immunity doesn't end there. And again, the reason for that's pretty clear. Even if the, the diplomat enjoyed immunity, that would be pretty hollow if some state could come in and then just arrest the wife of the diplomat or all of their aides or whatnot. So it extends to a whole wide range of categories. Admin and technical staff, service staff, uh, career counselor officers, employees of it, spouses. All of these people enjoy various different uh, levels of immunity. And the immunity extends to things like prohibiting searches of their homes in some cases, like no search warrant to go and search the, the diplomat's home. You can't go to a judge and get authority to go and rummage around the U.S. diplomat's home in Ottawa, right? That's not on. Moreover, if these people are alleged to have committed crimes, they cannot be prosecuted. Uh, they're immune from jury duty. They're immune in many cases from being called as a witness, right? If they want to show up and testify, that's fine. But they're under absolutely no obligation to do that. Um, and uh, the, uh, it's this sort of thing that creates issues when you have like, okay, well, what exactly is the status of, for example... The wife of the diplomat, well, what is that person's status? And in that case, you'd have to look at uh, the uh, particular domestic law in the country where the diplomat is residing to see just how far the protection goes. Another important concept is that the diplomat cannot waive their immunity. Like the diplomat can't say, oh, that's fine, Uh, you can go ahead and prosecute me, I feel responsible. Only the country who has sent the diplomat would have the authority to waive the... Diplomatic immunity.
0: Interesting.
1: I imagine there the concern would be things like, well, hey, look, you're Canadian diplomat in some unstable little country, uh, just on some video recorded statement, read oh, yeah. something. I, I have not been tortured. Yeah. I have not been tortured. <laughs> I waive my immunity. Uh, that would be undesirable. Okay. Now, this immunity has uh, extended in some cases perhaps further than might have been intended. For example, there's been an ongoing problem in New York and other cities where there are a large number of diplomats. Uh, involving things like parking infractions. (laughs) So like in New York, uh, UN officials who enjoy diplomatic immunity, and there would be thousands of them, uh, have for many years caused problems because they just park with impunity. Uh, Because there's, well, they're just immune from the law dealing with parking. Uh, And, I mean, ultimately the remedy when somebody, let's say the diplomat from some country murders somebody, right? Or is alleged to have. Well, Ordinarily, you would expect either that country to decide to waive the immunity or you would expect in some lesser case for that country to deal with the problem themselves. But really, the only authority of the state that's hosting the diplomat would be to expel them, get out. But you're probably not expelling somebody for parking too long outside the United Nations on a red zone. Or well, something, it depends right? on how
0: long is how long, I suppose. But, yeah. you know, it's like, oh, it's that guy again. He's not supposed to be there. And every day that diplomatic <laughs> car is there, you know, they probably crush the car into a cube before they actually went after the person. But, you know, I digress.
1: So in, in Canada, we, we've actually, this is interesting, we've actually formulated this new specific policy, I guess it comes up frequently, uh, to deal with, uh, impaired driving allegations by various people who enjoy diplomatic immunity because yeah. we can't prosecute them. What do you do when the diplomat's wife is pulled over at the roadblock and blows over? Uh, and we've created this entire... Just let her
0: go? It's like yeah. She's a well, diplomat, she's you allowed can't to drive her. drunk, you can't arrest try to get out of her
1: way? So we've got this uh, policy in place now for that, which would be uh, w- requesting uh, permission from the country to suspend that person's driving privileges uh, or, or requesting that the head of the mission undertaken writing to stop that person from continuing to drive for some period of time. At the roadside? Well, no, eventually. There'd yeah. be some, you know, ornate letter written with some nice looking letterhead saying, you know, please, kind sir, would you please stop Mrs. Smith, the alleged uh, impaired driver, from continuing <laughs> to drive her Mercedes with, you know, the flags on it uh, down the road while drunk. Uh, and ultimately, I guess if they didn't do that and Mrs. Smith just kept on driving around, they say that the, the Canada would uh, then ultimately expel that person. So that's really the extent of our power. We can ask nicely. Uh, but it's important because it protects us in other circumstances where we might want some protection. Indeed. Now, all of that background led me to have a look again <laughs> at something I recalled from the distant past, yes. which was... The Victoria City of Victoria Streets and Traffic Bylaw. And it caused me to look at that. I had a vague memory of it from years ago. And the City of Victoria has actually seen fit to grant immunity to a number of, uh, in a number of circumstances, from the obligation to pay for parking. Um, so we've created our own little uh, immune categories of immunity under this Streets and Traffic Bylaw. Uh, and uh, in particular, it's Section 71. Uh, of that uh, bylaw, and that's the one which deals with metered parking in metered zones, and then the following section, 72, which deals with pay station zones, the new things that we've got. Mm -hmm. Uh, And a subsection of that, subsection 11, uh, deals with a number of categories of uh, vehicles that are immune from having to pay for parking. Uh, And it's an interesting list. It includes a list of things like A vehicle that belongs to the city, that's officers, employees, or agents. I guess that makes sense. Why would the city pay for parking to itself to park its own vehicle somewhere? That's probably sensible.
0: That is exactly the kind of thing we would normally do. When you say it out loud, I'm just pointing that out. But we should avoid
1: that. So then other things are excluded here. Subsection B, a vehicle that belongs to and is being used to transport, so they actually have to own it. It can't be some other vehicle, the mayor. Uh, a city councillor, a member of parliament, a member of the legislative assembly, uh, and then there must they must those categories of people who must own the car, must have a notice signed by the director of engineering or chief of police displayed on the vehicle. So the mayor can park without paying as long as she's dutifully got her notice signed by the director of engineering or the chief of police, and that she's displayed it, and the vehicle has to belong to her. That's important. Can't be her friend's car. And then we exclude various other things. An ambulance. That makes sense. Yes. A vehicle being used uh, by an organized fire department or police department. Interestingly, they use the term organized. Yeah,
0: I, I caught that too. Yeah. What about a disorganized? What is yeah. that one? You might
1: wind up with that ticket. Sorry, your fire department's in utter <laughs> chaos. We're ticketing you. Pull up your. Uh,
0: Everybody's free parking's yeah. gone.
1: <laughs> <laughs> this is serious. It's a state of disorganization. But the part that made me smile the most, this is the part that I recalled from years ago. Yeah is the exception found in Section 71, Sub-11, E. And it reads this way. E. A vehicle bearing the flag or insignia of the Lieutenant Governor of British Columbia or of the senior officer commanding the Canadian Armed Forces on Vancouver Island. Now, the interesting thing about how that is worded is, unlike all of the other exemptions, it does not say the vehicle must belong to the Lieutenant Governor, nor does it say the Lieutenant Governor must be using the vehicle. It simply says, a vehicle bearing the flag or insignia of the Lieutenant Governor. That's an interesting flag, by the way. Now, I should say, a person certainly wouldn't want to be impersonating uh, the Lieutenant Governor of British Columbia, nor the senior officer commanding the armed forces on Vancouver Island. But I should say, the section doesn't require that. It doesn't require you to be either of those people. So, you know, it would be an interesting question if somebody had, for example, I heart the Lieutenant Governor of British Columbia and his flag or her flag. Here it is. uh, That person on the wording of that section, which is also incorporated referentially into the following section, Section 72, which deals with pay station zones, would be immune uh, from paying for parking. So we'll have to leave for another day to see whether... That issue ever gets litigated, but it is a very interesting subsection, that being subsection E. I was able to find with some ease the flag of the (laughs) Lieutenant Governor of British Columbia. Are you going to try this? Is this the experiment? I'm not sure sure I've got time for this particular litigation, but out of interest, I'd be interested to know whether any listeners are able to locate the flag or insignia of the senior officer commanding the Canadian Armed Forces of Vancouver Island. That would be an interesting experiment in uh, Google if somebody has a few minutes. Uh, but again, don't impersonate those people if you want to have the flag or insignia of those people on your Honda Civic. You might want to have a clear notice I am not the commanding officer of the Canadian Armed Forces for Vancouver Island and this is not his Honda Civic. But <laughs> see somebody gets not, arrested by the
0: military that, police. That, does not, appear, to get
1: on that does not appear to be a requirement. <laughs> so let's see how many people how see how quickly the internet can find the required insignia.
0: You know, I I look at this, and this is just from experience in covering various stories like this, as well as, of course, constitutional law. And every word in that document, it seems, seems has a, a stack of court cases a mile high attached to it of exactly what it means. But it says... Bearing the flag, I note the use of the definite article instead of an indefinite, a flag or insignia of the lieutenant governor. I wonder if there's a provision somewhere where the lieutenant governor has to be present for that to be the flag. I I don't know. I'm just sort of, I'm trying to think of ways where there's no way it's that easy. You might
1: want want to then reference the insignia because the language is a vehicle bearing the flag or insignia. Uh, of uh those individuals and again unlike all the other subsections here <laughs> there's no that specify it must belong to these people or it must be an ambulance or a uh. you know vehicle belonging to an organized fire department for example this one doesn't require any have any of those provisos uh but again don't impersonate these people make sure you're not uh, trying to trick somebody into thinking that Honda Civic is in fact the uh you know lieutenant governor going out to you know starbucks for a uh Uh, a latte before starting work in the day
0: yeah all right that's that's a fun story i like that (laughs) thank you i want to take a quick break because there's an important matter that you and i discuss from time to time it's one that i feel very strongly about i think you do a very good job communicating it is access to the justice system for those who do not have the financial means to retain counsel we've seen a change announced recently i want your thoughts on it right after this I'm Al Therabee with the latest from CFAX Santas Anonymous. Applications for the 2019 Christmas Hamper Program are now open. All family-supported will receive a hamper containing food for the holiday season and gifts for children ages 17 and under. You can find an application form at CFAX 1070 at 1420 Broad Street or online at cfaxsantas.com. Applications must be dropped off in person by the family in need. The deadline is November 15th, but applications will close when capacity is reached, so submit as soon as possible.
1: Imagine you're going full speed down the Pat Bay Highway and you throw on the brake. That's
0: Elizabeth May's plan, and it will crash our economy. We need a climate plan that's ambitious and
1: achievable. That reaches net zero emissions by 2050. That shifts us down in gear together. Expert environmentalists give the Liberal plan an A in feasibility. Choose a real plan to protect the environment and reduce pollution. Choose forward and vote Ryan Windsor, your liberal candidate in Saanich Gulf Islands.
0: Authorized by the official agent for Ryan Windsor. It's buy one, get one free week at Thrifty Foods. You can say that again. It's buy one, get one free week at Thrifty Foods. Buy one, get one free throughout the store. Make room in the freezer, cupboards, fridge, heck, clear out the garage. Because there's never been a better time to stock up on items your family needs. Hurry in. Buy one, get one free is only on until Wednesday. You can say that again. Only until Wednesday. Thrifty Foods. Eat happy.
1: Thanks for calling 1-800-GOT-JUNK. This is Sarah. How can I help? Can you help me get my yard cleaned up?
0: I've got junk piled everywhere.
1: Sure, we can do that.
0: What if quitting time comes and they're not quite done? We work until midnight, seven days a week. Can you come right now? We can be there in 90 minutes. Can I mark this down as spring cleaning for next year? We bring the springtime with us. Wow. When you want it to feel like springtime, call 1-800-GOT-JUNK. Or visit one 800 gotjunkcom We can make it springtime anytime a sleek all-black interior, a powerful 5.7-liter V8 Hemi engine, 20-inch all-black aluminum wheels, a menacing front grille. Get the perfect blend of beauty and brawn during the all-out clear-out event. Receive 25% off MSRP with up to $17,400 in total discounts on select 2019 Ram 1500 classic models. Talk to your Ram dealer for details. What's the best way to score an upgrade on your next beach vacation? Impersonate a celebrity and throw a tantrum? Nah, just be you. It's Sell Off Vacations Upgrades for All Sale. Save on the all-inclusive vacation you want. Get the upgrade you deserve. But act now. No impersonation required. Visit our store at the new Belmont Market in the West Shore. Selloffvacations.com
1: down there, it's coming out for these
0: houses. Tuesday on Discovery's Hellfire Heroes. It's on until the last person is saved. You go to the front line. Every day is a physical challenge. With a team of firefighters, our fire crews put their lives on the line every day, who risk Let's go! Let's go! it all. It's all about honor, courage, dedication. An all new season of Discovery's Hellfire Heroes. Tuesday at 7, only on Discovery. Stay connected to CFAX 1070 and listen anywhere with the new enhanced iHeartRadio app. It's fantastic. I use it every day. Download it today. Keeping you informed, Adam Sterling on CFAX 1070. We should note that the diplomatic immunity provision for the purposes of parking is... um, That won't stop you from getting the ticket, Michael Mulligan, from Mulligan, Tam and Pearson. So you'll still find it on your vehicle when you return. It's afterwards that a process would have to take place.
1: Yeah, you're going to have to ask yourself just exactly how much time do you have on your hands to litigate this issue. Also, I should say, don't get yourself charged with treason. (laughs) <laughs> you're not That's taking over. Serious. You're just you're just barking. <laughs> we'll see if anyone's got time to litigate that
0: issue. Sort of a footnote on a change to a law. This law was altered after citizens began trying to avoid it and incidentally committed treason. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, um, I do want to talk about access to justice in general, because regardless of how well-read a person may be, regardless of how, how knowledgeable or intelligent an ordinary person can be, even if somebody is already a lawyer, if you engage in a legal process the best advice you can get is to hire a lawyer even if you're already a lawyer um ordinary folks navigating the justice system can be an extremely onerous prospect i do not recommend it for any person regardless of how what they feel their abilities are recognizing that we have a system in place to provide lawyers for those who cannot afford them you have uh, done a very good job communicating for a couple of years now how how little money there actually is available what has been
1: announced recently? Yeah, there's been some happy progress in what's been a pretty dark area for the last more than 20-plus years in British Columbia. The the history of it is that in B.C. back in the 1990s when the NDP was in power, um, they recognized at that time even the lack of funding for legal aid, and there was a special tax imposed on All lawyers' bills, it's a PST, you don't pay on any other service, like if you hire an architect or an accountant or something. They brought in this tax saying this money is going to fund uh, legal aid in British Columbia. Pretty quickly, the tax started collecting more money than was going to legal aid. And when the Liberals were in opposition, they dumped all over the NDP saying, isn't this wrong, this money was intended to help the poor, what are you doing? Then, of course, the Liberals got into power And then in 2002, they cut legal aid funding by 40%. They closed all of the legal aid offices across the province. They canceled virtually all family legal aid, fired all the lawyers who did poverty law work. Um, It was a pretty awful uh, uh, event uh, for anyone concerned with uh, access to justice for people that can't otherwise afford it. Uh Uh, And then things have, uh, they kept the tax, of course, uh, and uh, it's been in place continuously, and, and now we're at the point where, the government collects about three times more in that tax than they actually provide to pay for legal aid. It's really pretty astonishing. So a few months ago, this is the recent positive news, uh, an associ- a group called the Association of Legal Aid Lawyers had organized a service withdrawal uh, by lawyers who do that work. And the other thing that's happened is for more now than 20 years, there has been no increase in the amount of money, the meager amount of money, uh, paid to lawyers who agreed to do these legal aid uh, cases. And it's gotten to the point where it was a tiny fraction of what uh, would otherwise be paid to do the work and a completely inadequate amount of uh, money uh, to provide proper uh, assistance to people uh, who managed to somehow qualify, uh, because that's another issue, of course. The uh, Both the inadequate funding now for well more than 20 years uh, has meant that Uh, Entire categories of people who used to get help now get no help at all. Uh, People only discover that when they wind up actually being in that position and finding out, no, there's no one who's going to help you get that child support. There's no one who's going to help you, um, you know, if you're alleged to have committed some crime. No one. And that becomes a shock to people who sort of assume, oh, well, somebody will be there, uh, right? In fact, in many cases, the answer is no, uh, there is no one. We fired all the poverty law lawyers. We stopped covering the family law problems. And uh, and then finally, they lowered the threshold to get coverage to the point where if you have a full-time minimum wage job, you're considered too rich for any help, which is just an outrageous state of affairs.
0: Yeah, it is. Because what happens? Somebody finds themselves a subject to criminal prosecution. They make a modest wage, but, you know... More than twenty, what is it, twenty eight thousand a year, something like that? Is the cutoff?
1: It's it's uh, for a single uh, person. If you make minimum wage full time, uh, you now you're considered too rich to qualify, and you have no hope of being able to afford uh, counsel if you're making an income of that amount. It's simply impossible.
0: So what do you do? Do you go to the bank and say, hey, can you give me a bunch of money? I'm going to lose my freedom? Or or Yeah, yeah,
1: for many people, it's like, look, uh, they uh, come to that shocking realization that there's nothing there for them, and uh, they would then go through a a succession of ask your family, ask your friends, see what uh, you can borrow, and if you can't do any of those things, you are simply on your own, which to many people is completely shocking uh, because they not unreasonably would have thought, hey... I should, at least in a country like Canada, in a province like British Columbia, have a fair trial. Most people would be shocked to learn uh, that uh, we are prepared to conduct criminal trials or allow single moms or other people that just desperately need help to go into court absolutely on their own uh, because we're just unwilling to uh, spend the money, which we've already collected, uh, to pay for legal help. It's pretty awful. Um, so a few months ago, after many years of this, uh, there was to be a service withdrawal by lawyers who do that work. Uh, and that's a difficult thing for people to do, of course, because the lawyers who are doing that work are doing it out of a profound concern for ensuring people get help. Uh, and if the only uh, way you have to uh, create some pressure on the government is to stop helping the desperately poor people who really, really need help, that's no easy thing to do. No. So a couple of days before that service withdrawal was to start, the the government agreed to enter into negotiations and that was really positive. Um, And there has been just announced uh, this week uh, that they've come to a three-year agreement, which is uh, really good news uh, given the context of really awful news now for like 25 years. Uh, And the particular agreement is modest in fairness. It's things like Uh, lawyers who do that work who were paid $83.90 an hour will see a a raise, this is the first one in like 20 years, um, to $104.88, and then some small amounts over the couple of years following that. Um, Now, I should say this, for some people you might think, well, that seems like a lot of money, but the other thing that happens is what they'll do is they'll say, well, we're providing somebody uh, three or four hours of legal work at was $83 an hour and $104 an hour to, for example, try to get a protection order so that your children are safe no lawyer can possibly do the work in the amount of time involved, so they just do it, uh, and they wind up billing somebody, you know, billing legal aid $300 or $400 for two days' work. That's what actually happens. Right? How many hours
0: is in, say, an, an ordinary criminal defense, you know, that goes to trial? Be hundreds, wouldn't it? Or
1: it, it could well be. I mean, to give you an idea, for uh, criminal matters, they're ordinarily dealt with in what's called a block tariff amount. Like They just set a particular amount to, for example, have a trial, Right. Um, And the amount involved would represent, like, let's say, a run-of-the-mill trial, something that might be a day in court, might take the lawyer two or three days' work to prepare for the thing. Uh, Somebody doing that might be paid under the legal aid scheme, you know, $900, something like that, for several days' work. Um, And one of the other, I think, serious misconceptions is um, people, I think, sometimes think, oh, well, if the lawyer somehow drags that out, uh, appears a bunch of times in court or something, they're somehow making more money. The practical reality is they're not paid for any of those things. Uh, so the lawyer doing that is really, frankly, showing up there as a volunteer. All right. So the announcement was just made, which is positive, is a, a small increase that's going to amount to about $20 million a year. It'll provide for the first increase in pay in more than 20 years for people doing that work. That's positive, although modest. It's going to mean that the legal aid budget is now going to represent, I think, about $95 million out of the... 250 million in round numbers they're collecting pursuant to that tax. That's still an abomination. That's a little more. Uh, But I think the positive thing uh, here, the most positive thing is that the government has recognized that group, the Association of Legal Aid Lawyers, as the bargaining agent for lawyers who do that work. So what it will hopefully mean in years going forward is that there can be further negotiations. This agreement was for three years um, that will try to get uh, that uh, put back in line. Uh, I often thought you know a uh, a fair way to approach it might be to you know the government sets a, a rate they pay for lawyers who are defending uh, government employees, for example, who are charged with uh, offenses. Uh, or defending the government when they go to court. Is that so, so common
0: and standardized? That's yeah. disappointing. So there, um, there would be, to-
1: there, there's a standard rate for that. I often thought it'd be fair. Make it the same rate as what they're paying for legal aid. That seems like a oh, fair approach. I see what you're I, I'm see not sure I'm right. getting a lot of traction there. But anyways, it's some positive news after very, many, uh, years of darkness. So hopefully it does good things for access to justice.
0: All right. That's all our time for this week. But Michael, thank you as always. Legally speaking, on Facts Stand 70, Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. See you next week. Thank Take you. Care.